For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. In an ongoing theme here in the book of Hebrews, our writer is giving his readers many solid reasons not to go on retreat to the comforts of their old life in Judaism. In this study, he contrasts the old covenant of the law with the new covenant of grace and shows these struggling believers why they need to stick with Jesus. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a message entitled, Better Promises. I was reading an interesting article about Morse code the other day, and we've really come a long way from the telegraph, that's for sure. Back in the 1800s is when this all began, the first success of sending text information. Samuel Morse's telegraph uh, could send pulses of electricity over a wire, as you know, later over radio waves. And using code, I have a picture of the codes uh, there are a chart, I should say. Short and long pulses of electricity over that wire, dots and dashes, they were called. Uh, and the alphabet and the punctuation all were encoded. And surprisingly, the abbreviations for words and phrases are very similar that, as to text messaging today. Just, but uh, we've come a long way, really. So... Thank you for that uh, chart. Now, Morse code really was a foreshadowing of much greater things to come. Now, when we talk about text messaging, of course, uh, did you know that 20 years after the first text message, which, by the way, was Merry Christmas, uh, after that 20 years, there are 200,000 texts sent a second. Now, if you do the math there, that's a lot of texting in a year's time, for sure. Now, the article uh, closes by saying, can you imagine going back to the days of Morse code in light of things like FaceTime, where without wires, you could, from one side of the world, as I did a couple weeks ago from India, in real time, even though it was evening in India, morning, in the United States, able to speak in real time, face to face of sorts, with my wife. That's pretty amazing technology. And in light of that technology, it would be kind of crazy to go back to the days of Morse code. Now, that's a great illustration of perhaps the entire theme of the book of Hebrews. 13 chapters, New Testament letter, bent on encouraging Jewish Christians who are being persecuted not to forsake Christ and go back to the old covenant, back to their more comfortable past of Judaism. It would make no sense because spiritually speaking, Judaism, the roots of Christianity, really foreshadowed the greater things to come, really pointed to Jesus appearing so Judaism was kind of the, the dots and dashes were saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. That's the purpose. But 
when Christ appears, God taking on the form of a human being through the virgin womb of Mary. Out comes the God-man. And as one scripture tells us, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So here we are kind of FaceTiming with the God of the universe, the face of Christ, telling us, Everything that Judaism was trying to point to in dark shadows, here we have the fullness of Christ. And so the writer, the pastor of these Hebrew Jewish Christians who were wanting to go backwards to something that really was, had been made obsolete because Judaism had done its good deed. It gave us the Messiah, prepared us for him and the gospel. So he's making the case in the face of Christ and present day realities, Hebrews, how could you go back to the dots and dashes? All right, verse one. Now, the point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest, a mediator, Christ, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. And so we're going to walk through the 13 verses here in chapter 8. We're going to continue with the theme that Christ is better, Christ is greater. There's no going backward. In their case, they're getting in a little trouble. <laughs> Things are challenging, so they want to go backwards. They want to take their foot off the accelerator in their Christian uh, walk with the Lord, and they want to put it in neutral. And worse than that, they want to go back to the dots and the dashes of Judaism, which had already done what it was supposed to do. And so if you're taking notes, there, there's going to be three things about Christianity, that's better. Not in the case, not saying that uh, Judaism was bad. It's saying that it, Christianity is superior because it's the fulfillment of Judaism. It's like a bulb that gives life to the daffodil. You got the daffodil. Uh, the bulb is Judaism and the, the, the plant that has blossomed, the life is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So number one, if you're taking notes, um, uh, it, uh, the new covenant is superior to the old covenant because Jesus does a better job. Jesus does a better job in that he's finished the work that Judea Judaism only started. Judaism, really, the whole purpose, here your text says, he did the work on earth, he ascended into heaven, and he sat down because he was finished accomplishing the redemption of mankind. He sat down, and that's really been a code from the very beginning. The Old Testament reveals the problem. The New Testament really gives the solution. Now, there were no chairs on purpose in the sanctuary that, that Moses uh, was told about that Solomon uh, built that temple. No chairs could be found of all the furnishings. The priests were not allowed to sit ever. It had spiritual significance. The work of forgiving sins could never be accomplished through the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. It just could cover sins, but it could never pay for them and remove them and change a person's heart from within. 
That was coming in Christ. And so the whole idea that Jesus came, took care of business, ascended, sent the Spirit, and sat down on the very throne that he had left before he decided to come down and save the world and become one of us through the womb of Mary. And so that's the point there. He's saying the Jewish priesthood couldn't fix the problem, but pointed to one that could. The animal sacrifices couldn't take away sins, but pointed to the one who could. It was a covenant that couldn't change a person's heart, but it pointed to the one that could. In fact, the Old Testament law is called a ministry of death because it, it was there to remind you, here's the bar, here's what, uh, here's what God is like, here's what God expects of people, but it did nothing to help us be that kind of person and just pointing out our sins. But then once Jesus appears and the, uh, he accomplishes the saving work, the purpose of Judaism has been complete. What did Jesus tell the Jews? He said, listen, now that I'm here, Judaism, the structure of Judaism, he compared to a wine skin that had been stretched out because it held the wine that fermented, and then it was stretched out. It could not be stretched out any further. Uh, Judaism as a structure had been stretched out as far as it could, and he said, I'm the new wine. You, You can't put Christianity or what I've come to do back in the structure that is pointing, pointing, pointing. Well, here I am, the object of Judaism's pointing. So he says that would be like a wineskin. Judaism is stretched all the way. It cannot go any further. Now, Judaism has done. Now, here I am. Now, I'm taking it from here. As the Jewish-born fulfillment of Jewish scriptures, Messiah, now he takes it now in something that we call the gospel or Christianity. And so, you know, what did Jesus say on the cross Number six of seven statements, he said, it is finished. What, what's finished? 1,400 years of dress rehearsals. 1,400 years of a Passover that pointed to a, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost that when death comes, it passes over. Now Jesus saying, I'm the lamb of God. I die on Passover. That blood now applied to the doorpost of your heart. Death comes and passes over. It is finished. No more sacrifices on that hill. No more a thousand years of blood sacrifices on that same hill. Solomon's temple at a thousand AD. So a thousand years of blood on the same region where Jesus dies. He says, it's finished. There's no more need for priesthood. There's no more need for the lamb at Passover. There's no more need for any of it. That's what the statement, it is finished, means. God becomes uh, a man, takes care of business, lays his life down. He dies. He's buried. He's resurrected. He's ascended. He sends the spirit. He sits down. He's done. Which priest, Hebrews, which priest could ever take a seat and that on a throne, and that in heaven. So he's just shooting holes in all the reasons, Jewish, 
that want, they want to go back to. He's saying, you can't go back. You can't go back. Jesus has everything you need. You know, I told you about the, the Jewish woman who called me after I did a memorial service. I don't know how she got my phone number, but she calls me and she says, hey, listen, I'm Jewish. I was at that memorial service you did, and quite frankly, I'm calling to let you know that I'm offended. Well, first of all, I wanted to say it was a Christian memorial service. <laughs> And I said, if it helps you, Annie, I told you the story that I, I'm, I'm a Jew. You know, she says, that's what bothers me. She says, I could figure it out. I looked at your last name and I saw your face. So. <laughs> and she says, what? what is up with, what are you doing? And I said, now, let me explain it to you. And I told her about my father. I told her about Isaiah 53. I made her turn to Isaiah 53. She read Isaiah 53 with me and she said, wow, you're... Bible version is the same as my Hebrew Bible. I went, yeah, it is. <laughs> so here's what I said, and I told you this. I said, listen, you're waiting for Messiah. Yes, we are. I said, okay, our Messiah was born in fulfillment of 300 Jewish Hebrew prophecies, 300 of them. He, 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 the God-man comes out of a, of a human being and, and walks on water and feeds 10,000 with, with five loaves and three fish. He, he, he heals the sick. He heals people from uh, being lame. The lame are dancing. The blind can see. The, the deaf are hearing. He speaks to the wind and the wind stops. Uh, he casts out demons. Uh, he raises the dead. He died for the sins of the world. He was buried. He rose again to justify us. He ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to change us from within and promised to save Israel in the end. I said, is there anything left for your Messiah to do? <laughs> what is left for him to do? And she said, and I never forget it. She said, well, when you put it that way, well, what other way is there to put it? Jesus already did everything. We're waiting for what? We're waiting for him to come the second time because he took care of everything to reconcile a sinful world unto himself by taking our sins out of the way, putting them on him and casting them into what he calls the sea of forgetfulness. And that way, he says, and then Jesus sat down. Yeah, I like that. All right, next paragraph. All right, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. That's their job, all right? And so it was necessary for this one, Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, if he was on earth, he really wouldn't be a priest for there are already men who do that, prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that's a copy, a shadow, of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, Exodus chapter 25. See to it that you make everything in the temple, the tabernacle is the pre-temple, according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and it's founded on better promises. All right, so number two, uh, 
why they need to stick with Jesus because Jesus ministers in a better place. He ministers from a better place because Jesus is God, the Son, and he does his work in heaven, not in a building uh, made by the hands of men. So when it comes to this idea of high priest, you know, we Protestant evangelicals, we don't uh, think of priesthood. We don't think in these terms. So I've changed the idea of priest for us to defense attorney because we can relate better to that. You get into trouble, you need somebody to stand between you and the guy with the robe, with the, you know, what's that called? Yeah, gavel. I was thinking mallet, but I thought mallet might be too strong. <laughs> You need a mediator, you need an advocate, a lawyer, somebody to speak up, to stand between you and the judgment and the judge uh, there. And that is what the high priest really was all about. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying, when it comes to a high priest, you know, Jesus didn't come down to play the game, the dress rehearsals, to perpetuate it, the ongoing futile uh, endless 1,400 years of, you've got sins, we need to cover them. Well, they're covered. You've got sins, we need to cover them. They're covered. You've got sins, we need to cover them. Pointing to who is going to come in and save us from this futile attempt to, to shed blood of an animal that doesn't change our hearts, it doesn't make us any better. Who's going to save us? Well, it's this Jesus Jesus, who, who, who ministers in heaven, who does the work there where it counts. In other words, let, let me show you the cutaway of the temple. Moses had a revelation on the mountain, and God tells him, build a tabernacle is just the pre-temple. It was a tent, but it looked the same as the temple. And he said, build it this way. It wasn't random. Everything was screaming gospel. Everything was pointing to heaven. It was a replica of heavenly realities. And so it wasn't about the building. Even Solomon, when he dedicated this, he said, Lord, we know that the highest heavens can't contain you. I'm not going to build a house for God to live in. We, we understand that, really, that the building was for us. But they, the Hebrews, were all about the temple, the temple, the temple. And this is why he's shooting holes in the temple saying, you do realize that this is a fake. This is fake. This is a model. This is a replica. Uh, the priests that are running around here are doing dress rehearsal. They're doing pretend acting. They're acting out. Passover is acting out the reality of Christ, who is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who comes down from heaven and offers his own blood in the heavenlies that deal is transacted, not here. He's saying, you're all the temple, the temple, the holy days. We need the priests and all of that. He says, listen, You've got Jesus who is God in a human body who offers not the blood of bulls and goats but his own blood, the blood of God. And where did that transaction really ultimately take place of the removal of sins from your, your life? In heaven. Not in the model, not in the make-believe, you know, that was all, the only value of this was in its ability to prepare and to teach and give insight to who Jesus Christ is. 
And once that's happened, it's lost its value. I told you about Disneyland, you know. We went, again, Jordan and I did daddy-daughter day in Disneyland. And, uh, you know, once again, I passed that sign on I-5 that says Disneyland. Uh, next two exits, I remember driving down there when the kids were really little. And we, we've been in the car for what seemed to be an eternity. <laughs> And I was only probably six to 10 hours. (laughs) And they'd see the sign, Disneyland, next two exits. And they would just explode with celebration. Oh, so happy the sign, there's Disneyland. Catilla Ave. (laughs) Well, when you're on Space Mountain, when you're riding the Pirates of the Caribbean, which I love, and Indiana Jones, which I also love, right? No kid ever turned to me and said, when are we going back to I-5, Dad, to see the sign? We want to see the sign, Disneyland, five miles. Hebrews, what are you doing? This, everything here is screaming, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If you read Revelation chapter 5 and 6, and we get a glimpse of him in there, you're going to see some of this stuff. Because this is a mock-up of some realities that go on in the very throne room of God. Yes, it's a mystery. But he's saying, take your eyes off the building. It's not going to be around very much longer. He says that at the end. But Christ is God. And he reigns not here, but from heaven on a throne. He's running the universe. And he's your father. Put your eyes There, the priest, the temple, the holy place, the holy days, they're all facsimiles. Do I have Romans 10, verse 4 back there? Great. Christ is the culmination of the law. The law, it could be the Ten Commandments, the first book, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, or also represents the entire Old Testament. Christ is the culmination of all the Old Testament in form, in type, in prophecy, in characters. Everything is screaming him so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So Christ is the end of the law. They thought that Judaism was the end, but it was a means to an end. And that end was Christ and sinner Together, forgiven eternal life. That was the deal. That's the gospel. So uh, Jesus, uh, back to the text, Jesus didn't come to play act about a future reality. (laughs) He actually is the reality and had something better to offer, not an old covenant, but a new one. Let's continue and actually finish the chapter, starting at verse seven. Now every four... Yes, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first one, the New Testament is called the first covenant, all right? So he's saying, now listen, if there was nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. It would have been fine. But God found fault with the people and said, now he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, From a Hebrew prophet, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. 
because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. It won't be like that covenant. And I turn away from them, declares the Lord. Next. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, I will put my laws in their minds and I'll write them on their hearts. This is the second covenant, the New Testament, the new covenant. I will be their God and they'll be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, know the Lord. Because guess what? Everybody will know me from the least to the greatest for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Ah, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete is age, and aging will soon disappear. So there you have it. Jesus offers better promises. Now, we need to talk about covenant, testament. Basically, the word covenant and testament in English have some slight differences. Really, in the Bible, they, they interchange, uh, use them interchangeably. Let me quote one commentator who put it this way about covenants. The Bible and God's plan to save the world is divided into two phases, what he calls the old covenant and the new covenant. The old agreement, you could call it an agreement. The new agreement. The first contract or covenant or agreement called the law kept men in line, pointed out God's goodness and revealed man's sin and need for a savior and a new life and a new heart. It said, in essence, do this or die. When the fullness of time came, God sent his son to fix the problem forever with a new arrangement, a new covenant, a new deal. He called it grace. Under this deal, sins are paid for, judgment is suspended, hearts are changed from within, and reconciliation with God is made possible for all who believe. Now, instead of do this or die, it's trust Christ and live. That is the difference between the two. And now, what I love about this is here are some Hebrews. They're Christian, but they're probably stumbled saying, you know, Christians did away and called our, our Bible the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and that there is a sense in the Jewish world that we, we Christians, Gentile, non-Jewish non Christians, have hoisted upon them this new covenant that replaces theirs. So whenever they hear you say the Old Testament, there's a little bit of offense, and they say, oh, the Old Testament. It's actually the Hebrew Scriptures. Oh, no, it isn't. By Jeremiah's definition... Do you see the genius here of the Holy Spirit? So he's going to tell the Jews, you think the new covenant is some Gentile uh, invention? This, the new covenant, the New Testament, is Jewish. It's Jewish in origin. Who thought it up? Well, it's recorded in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, 31 through, through 34. There it is. Now, He's going to explain to them why we have a New Testament. 
uh, why the Old Testament needed to be replaced from, from the lips of beloved Jeremiah. Just love that. Okay, this is the best way to get through to a Jew to say, oh, come on, we didn't invent the New Testament. You guys did. Jeremiah 31, read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. There it is from the lips of a, a Hebrew scripture, Hebrew prophet there. So number one, why do we need it? Verse seven says there, if it's up there, there was something wrong with the first one. Oh, not with the, can you put back the, the verse? There, here's the problem. The problem wasn't with the, the Old Testament. It was with the people. He found fault with what? There had been a problem, but God said he found fault with the people. Why? There's nothing wrong with the Old Covenant. Paul says the, the law is good, just, holy, pure. Nothing wrong with the Old Testament. The problem is with, with man's heart. So is there anything wrong with saying, hey, don't lie, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Don't take stuff that doesn't belong to you. <laughs> is there something wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. What is wrong is that people can't obey that. That's the problem. So he says, I find fault with it doesn't, the old covenant doesn't fix the problem. It points out the problem. That's why it's a ministry of condemnation. It's telling you, thou shalt not, and if thou shalt, then thou shalt die. That's not a lot of good news because nobody can keep the law. Who can do it? And if you manage to do it outwardly, oh, you're breaking them inwardly. There's just no way out of that first covenant death spiral. And that's what exactly what he's saying. The problem isn't with God's command. The problem is with our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it and beyond cure? That's what he found fault. And what is he, who is he finding fault with? He makes a covenant with them, Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments come down. What do they say at the end? We will do everything the Lord has said. They shout it out. Of course you will. It's only a few chapters later that they're partying drunk around two golden calves, worshiping and bowing down with sexual immorality, saying, these are the gods that busted us out of Egypt. He said, yeah, he had found fault with them. He gave them a covenant. And he says, if it would have worked, there would have been no problem. We wouldn't need a new one. But the reason we need a new one is because the people couldn't keep the first one. It was do this or die. And you know what? They opted with plan B, to die, because they couldn't keep the law. So it was a ministry of death. The old covenant, Warren Wiersbe put it this way, the old covenant is a reminder of sins. The new covenant is a remission of sins. Galatians chapter three says, the law came to take your hand and to lead you to Christ. That's the purpose of thou shalt not because you know you have and thou shalt because you know you have not. So you need some help. So Galatians 3 says the purpose, the primary purpose of God's law is to reveal to you you're in trouble. You're a sinner. You need a savior. How do you hope to stand before God like that? Enter the better promise. 
It's called grace. And so what's just awesome about this is, is that, first of all, notice the I wills. In the covenant, in the arrangement God makes, it's not about man's effort. It's about what God will do for us. He, he makes a deal, and he's just asking you, will you accept the deal that I brokered? It's unilateral. I sign alone. It's all about me. The I will is used six times, six times. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Where does it say what we have to do? Where's our part? Trust me, faith. I will do all of those things. Look at these two beautiful scriptures, Ephesians chapter two. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith and not by yourself, not a a work. It is the gift of God. Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of anything righteous that we have done, but because of his mercy. It goes on to say, he saved us through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, through the washing and cleansing of forgiveness. And so I just love that so much that, you know, it's not by my effort to make myself right with God. You can do nothing. You know what you bring? This is what, how you qualify. You gotta be messed up. You gotta be messed up. You've gotta be a sinner. You, how do you qualify for grace and the new covenant if you got it together? You're disqualified if you think you've got it together. Amen? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to be the one to say that, but it's true. So let's talk about the better promises here from verses 10 through 12 as we wrap up. And so, number one, he says, this is a covenant where I'm able to get inside the person and take over the controls and exert my divine nature on their will and change them. I will put my laws in their mind and in their hearts. It's an inside job. The old covenant, all outward. The new covenant is I'm getting in. I'm getting in. Now, I wish somebody could have explained that to me before. It would have saved me a little bit of a struggle. It took me a long time. When people came to me with the gospel when I was 19 years old, sinning and moral, everything, godless, I said to them, I don't like anything you like. I don't value anything you Christians value. I don't talk like you. I don't want to talk like you. I don't like your music. I don't want to be in church. That guy goes on forever and ever and ever. (laughs) I really don't. Nobody told me. Nobody said it to me. Oh, no, man, no. Oh, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The Holy Spirit comes inside you and starts to transform you. Your mind, your desires will change. You'll be the supernatural part of becoming a Christian. Oh, if I just would have known, oh, that makes sense, that I won't be me. I'll be me the way God intended me to be. I'll be different. I'll be changing. And so many people... uh, talk about this beautiful thing. You know, I told you, my dad was the first, this Jewish man from Brooklyn, kind of a hardened kind of business guy. And he's the first. He came home one day with a Bible out of the blue. And he started to, four teenagers, started reading the book of Revelation out loud at the dinner table. 
and there was a lot of looking at my siblings and a lot of my, even my mother didn't know what was going on. And then we noticed, why isn't dad cussing? He was a, my dad loved to cuss. What happened to him? You know, he wasn't cussing. And, and there was another thing I told you about. One day we were driving in the car and uh, I, just me and my dad was quiet. And I saw a kid riding a bike on the sidewalk and he looked out and he saw the kid and he waved at the kid. And I went, why did you wave to the kid? Do you know the kid? And he goes, no, it's just a cute little kid. I'll wave to him. Who are you? <laughs> what? And here's what my, my siblings and I said. And we said this for sure. What has gotten into dad? Ah. It wasn't what. It's who. You know, and so. That's what happens. Uh, he didn't just start going to a church and handing out tracts and knocking on doors or whatever it is you call. Oh, now I've got found a religion and I can't do this and I can't do this and I've got new lists of things that I can't and cannot do. Suddenly there was a light in his eyes. There was a change in the way he talked. There was a change in his values. What happened here? The Holy Spirit of God said, I stand at the door of your heart and knock whoever hears my voice and opens the door. I will come into them and I will spend time with them. That's the answer there. That's the new covenant. You want to go back to outward covering the priests and no connection with the living God? Come on. We've got everything. We've got a better promise. It's an inside job. Some of my friends came to me a week after I got saved. I didn't know anything. I didn't know one Christian except my father. I didn't, I didn't know one Bible verse. I had never been to church. My friend said, hey, let's go party. It's Friday. Furthest thing from my mind. I was like, ooh, partying? What? No. Ooh, no. How does that happen? How, how does a person not want to party anymore when one loved to party? Because something happened on the inside. I didn't join a religion. I didn't turn over a new leaf. But God's spirit came in and took control and started to influence me. Now, verse 11, there, there's a new covenant in place. The new promise guarantees us a place. Well, I skipped one. I skipped the best one here. Number two. The new covenant brings us into personal relationship with God. I love this. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. I just told somebody recently who I was sharing the gospel with and they were saying, you know what? I don't know that I believe it. You know, you know sometimes I want to believe it. And uh, you know, my, my, I have a friend who's into it. And I said, stop using the word it. It's him. There's a face, there's a heartbeat, there's a being, there's a, a father, there's a love, there's a relationship. You come to know him. You wake up in the morning and you know that your father in heaven who spoke and the planet existed, he wants to hear from you, he wants to talk to you. I will be their God and they will be my people. It's about a person. It's about a father. It's about the love you've always been craving for. Who can love you like the one who created you in the first place? He's the one who thought of you and said, I want a John. I want a Barb. I want an Eric. And he designed you. 
That's the kind of love we've been craving for and we look for it in all the wrong places. I will be their God. I will be their everything. They will see me face to face. That's such an awesome. Number three, he just starts talking about the kingdom that the new covenant gets you into. The kingdom says, uh, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother. Oh, you got to know the Lord, man, because they're all going to know me from the least to the greatest. Now, I love this. The next big event, thy kingdom come. He's coming to establish a kingdom and the new covenant. Make sure that you're seated at a place of honor at the king's table. That is awesome. In a place where there is no evil. Everybody knows the Lord. There's no more talk radio with everybody's opinions. It, it's just the Lord seated on a throne and every mouth silenced. And if we want some information, we have the Lord right there. We see him. He's seated. Nobody has to be told. There's nobody acting out. The tears are dried by the hand, the hand of God, wiping the tears away. No more crying, no more mourning, no more sorrow, no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. He says the new covenant will bring you to a place where there is no evil allowed. Nothing impure or unclean can enter that place. That's just a beautiful thought. He says, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. First Corinthians second, chapter two and verse nine. And that, you know, I'll be out of a job. Look, I mean, no more evangelists, you know? That's, I'll get a new job, I'm sure. But, you know, Christ will be seated on a visible throne. There'll be a visible palace. It'll be over in Israel. Israel will be a superpower. They will have converted to Christ. And you and I, because of the new covenant, because you said yes, because you trust in Christ, you're going to be a part of that. That's what's part and parcel of the new, new covenant. You get to come in. That's so awesome. And then finally... Number four, the best. He leaves the best for last. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. <laughs> Is there anything worse than a guilty conscience, fear of judgment, walking around with shame and condemnation and self-loathing? He says, listen, I want to take your sins away. Let me show you the dress rehearsal, 1,400 years of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Two goats. Thank you. Goat one, goat two. The goats, they stand for one transaction on the day of Yom Kippur. Yom, day in Hebrew, Kippur, from the verb to cover. Sins could be covered, but they, they were hopefully one day going to be removed. And here's what the deal was. This goat lost its life for the sins of God's people. Onto this goat was transferred, figuratively speaking, all the sins that this goat died for. And this goat then was ushered off into the wilderness, out of the city, out of the gate, to wander away, never to be seen or heard again. It represented carrying the sins that were paid for away, never to be seen again. 1,400 years over and over again. Somebody's coming. Somebody's coming 
who can not only pay for the sins, but can remove them and take them. And that's why the author of Hebrews will say, Jesus suffered and he walked outside the gate of Jerusalem. He carried the sins away because he was the scapegoat. He is the day of covering, but he takes them away. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, in infinity, that your sins. Now, now uh, some people can say, they can say, I can forgive, but I can't forget. Well, it's not much fun to be on the other side of that statement, <laughs> you know? You're not very Christ-like because God just said, you can put the scriptures back, I will forgive their sins and remember them no more. If God wanted to, he could catalog every sin of every person from the time of Adam and Eve. But he says, I am going to do something. I am going to will myself to forget sins that have been paid for and covered and confessed and judged and dealt with. I'm going to have them carried away and I'm going to put them in the sea of forgetfulness. The bottom of the sea, the prophets say, is where he puts our sins. Oh, the greatest of all blessings, to have your sins not held against you. He's saying, when I look at you, I can't even recall your past sinning. It doesn't enter my mind because I willed myself as God to forget it. Gone. He looks at me as if he looks at uh, the Son himself, God the Father, looking at us that way because our sins are paid for and taken away. And he says, I'll never bring them up again to you. You're covered. That's so awesome. I was reading on a therapist sort of blog, and I, I, here's a quote. <laughs> it's my educated opinion that a deep and abiding sense of God's forgiveness would decrease the load on the mental health systems by at least 50%. There's nothing more debilitating to the human soul than unresolved guilt and shame, which when left without remedy, escalate into behaviors quite destructive. We have a defense attorney with scars that said payment has been received in full. For every sin you have committed, are committing, and will commit. Done. Paid for, judged, and taken away. Removed from the memory banks of God. And if God doesn't know about it, nobody knows about it. That matters. Amen. So, so, so the last sentence I want to point out to you because it's very interesting. The last sentence, it says, by calling the new covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what's obsolete is aging and will soon disappear. Now, people back then, they see this imposing temple and the priesthood and the altars and the harps and the choirs and it's been around for a thousand years at that time. It's going to disappear. A few years after the writing of this sentence, the temple was completely leveled by Rome. 
in AD 70, the priesthood was dissembled. The altar, gone. The sacrifices, for 2,000 years, it became obsolete. It was aging. And because Christ appeared and fulfilled the whole Old Testament, it's gone. I ask a Jew, as a Jew, where's, your, where's Judaism? How can you have biblical Judaism without a temple, without priesthood, without an altar, without blood sacrifice? That is Judaism. That's biblical Judaism. You don't have a high priest. You don't have offerings. There's no blood on any altar anywhere. There's no temple. That's because God said, in my sovereign power, I'm done with this. We don't need it. Now, they can gather in synagogues and talk about this and have holy days and all of that. Do you know what I'm Judaism? You know what I'm biblical Judaism? Well, you know, where's the sacrifices? Ask Jewish people. What's going on? Where's your religion? Well, maybe someday. It's been 2,000 years. <laughs> That's a long time. And why? Nobody believed it was possible that it would all just disappear. Well, because God said, I came through the womb of a human being. I fulfilled every last type and scripture and prophecy. There is no need for it. It's obsolete. And what's obsolete will disappear and I will see to it. And he saw to it until the end. When the church is removed, God starts to deal the last seven years on this planet with Israel. And right at the end, right before Armageddon, they convert they call out to Yeshua, and he saves them. It's awesome. Let me give you the four better promises, one-liners, okay? Your takeaway. The better covenant in Christ. Number one, a changed heart with new desires and the power to carry them out. Number two, a personal relationship with the living God, the maker of heaven and earth. You call him father. You call him dad. He calls you son. Or daughter. Number three, an honored place at the king's table when God's kingdom is established here. A visible throne, visible palace, and you sitting there with a crown. It's a new covenant of grace. Four, and finally, a clean slate before God on judgment day. A clean conscience, sins forgiven, a heart filled with peace, and a mind at rest. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your covenant of grace. We accept, Lord. We're, we're, we're signing on to this one, Lord. This is a, it's a deal we can't live without. We thank you, Lord, that as a result of having your spirit in, there are good works that we do. There is a life of holiness, but it's a response, Lord. It's a response, and your spirit helps us. It's a way to say thank you, not a way to earn our way. So thank you, God. We ask that you work in our hearts and lives now in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org or find us on Facebook. 
These podcasts are also available in video format on our Calvary Chapel The Rock YouTube page. 